You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In late July 1845, two English ships sat in Baffin Bay, which lies to the west of Greenland. The ships, HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, were two of the most sophisticated vessels in the British Navy and were commanded by a veteran naval officer, Sir John Franklin. The crews, 129 men in total, were considered the finest England could offer. Their goal was to map the elusive Northwest Passage, a route that explorers had been searching for for centuries. It was a goal that would bring prestige and fortune to all involved. The two ships were waiting for conditions to improve before heading west into Lancaster Sound. Hopes and expectations and spirits were high for the success of Franklin's expedition. On July 28th, two whaling ships, Prince of Wales and Enterprise, would encounter the expedition and then part company a few days later. With that, the Franklin expedition, one of the most well-prepared exploration endeavors in history, would disappear. Today's episode is part one of two about the lost Franklin expedition. It is a tale of mystery and hardship, one that has slowly revealed itself over the course of 170 plus years. And know that it is a tale that still boasts many unanswered questions. So let us get started. The Lost Franklin Expedition. For today's episode, we are going to start by explaining a bit about the geographic region in which our story takes place. This is important because we are going to be talking about places that most of us probably don't have a great understanding of with regards to their location on a map. For that reason, I have put several maps on our website, explorerspodcast.com, that will really, really help you understand this podcast. However, I also realize that not everyone can refer to a map when listening to the show. I mean, if you're driving a car or jogging, it's not like you can just call up a website and check out a map. For that reason, I will try and be as thorough as possible when describing where our podcast takes us. But always keep the following in mind when we go through the narrative. The area our show takes place in is the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. This is the northern extremes of North America. If you look at a map, it is that big cluster of islands in the middle and north of Canada, a territory called Nunavut. Nunavut is the region north and west of Hudson Bay. East of Nunavut is a large body of water called Baffin Bay, which borders with Greenland. For centuries, men had been coming to this region in an effort to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean. The problem is that the Canadian Arctic Archipelago, which, as I said, is where we will be focusing on, is filled with more than 36,000 islands, big and small. Now, looking at a map of the region, you'll see a very obvious route leading east to west through all of these islands. It's roughly 800 miles in length and begins in Baffin Bay at a place called Lancaster Sound and ends at McClure Sound on the other side. But there's a huge issue here, ice. 
Much of this passage, especially in the west, is constantly filled with ice, making it impassable by sea. With that in mind, Arctic explorers understood that they would have to sail into Lancaster Sound during the summer months when it was free of ice, head west as far as they could, and then go south and then wend their way through the many islands of the region. Here you would hopefully find less ice, and ultimately a route through the archipelago and to the open waters in the west. So, for this episode, if you can't refer to the map on the website, just know that our expedition heads west into the mass of islands in ice and snow, and then we'll push south. I'll try and avoid throwing out a million names and places, and focus on the major landmarks, so that the narrative does not get too confusing. With that said, let's get some background on our explorers. As noted earlier, men had been searching for a passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean for centuries. In the south, the Strait of Magellan was the answer but a route in the north would prove more elusive. Ships were stopped by islands and ice and snow once they ventured into the archipelago. In the west, the waters north of Alaska and the Yukon Territory were free of islands and navigable. So it was this middle section, this area of islands and peninsulas, that thwarted explorers time and time again. There are water routes that do exist, but they were often, and in some cases always, filled with ice. And to top it off, there was little food to be found in much of the region, especially in winter. Thus, getting trapped in the ice could be deadly for a ship that was ill-provisioned. So, that takes us to England during the decades following the fall of Napoleon in 1815. At this time, England was mostly at peace. This meant that they, as well as other nations, could turn their attention to discovery and exploration. All over the world, there was a race to uncover the blank areas on the map. This was on land and at sea. Of course, the Arctic and the coveted Northwest Passage was on this list. Expeditions from different countries had unveiled the existence of Antarctica in the 1820s and 30s. Men had gained fame from these feats, making the discovery of the Northwest Passage and the mapping of the hundreds of miles of unexplored Arctic coastline a great prize. This was true for officers in the British Navy. With no major wars going on, exploration and discovery was the ticket to fame and fortune. Heck, you didn't even have to do that well. Just surviving was often good enough in the eyes of the public. One of the primary promoters of exploration and discovery was Sir John Barrow, a key member of the Admiralty, which oversaw the British Navy. It was a post Barrow held for 40 years, and as he came to the end of his career, he pushed hard for an Arctic expedition to complete the Northwest Passage. The most complete expedition to date had been conducted by Sir William Perry in 1819. He had entered Lancaster Sound and proceeded directly west, enjoying extremely mild temperatures. This had taken him all the way to Melville Island, about three-fourths of the way through the Arctic archipelago. However, Perry had been immensely lucky to get that far due to the mild weather. And even then, the ice that was in front of him, completing the passage, was permanent. That route was ultimately a dead end. So, the first choices to lead this new expedition were two of the nation's most prominent polar explorers, the just-mentioned William Perry and James Clark Ross. However, neither man was interested in the job at this point of his life. At the Admiralty, Barrow lobbied for Captain James Fitzjames, a 32-year-old naval officer who the Barrow family owed a great debt toward. But Fitzjames was deemed too young, and he had no polar experience. Other names were no doubt banding about, but the Admiralty would ultimately settle on Sir John Franklin, a naval officer with extensive experience in the Arctic. So, let us talk about Sir John Franklin. Franklin was born in 1786, making him 59 when the expedition would eventually depart England. He had had a long career in the Navy, serving in the Napoleonic Wars, including seeing action at Trafalgar, as well as in the War of 1812 with the United States. He would be injured at the disastrous, at least in the eyes of Britain, Battle of New Orleans. 
1818, he took part in an expedition that attempted to find a water route to the North Pole. A year later, he would lead the Copper Mine Expedition. Franklin's job was to travel overland from Hudson Bay and chart the north coast of the Canadian mainland to the mouth of the Copper Mine River. This was part of an attempt to map the Northwest Passage. The expedition would be a disaster. Planning was poorly done, and 11 of the 22 men would die, mostly from starvation. Food became so short, the survivors ate lichen, as well as their own boots. One man was accused of killing another in the party and then eating him. While Franklin was criticized for his inability to adapt to his environment, he was regarded as a hero back in England for showing courage and determination in the face of such adversity. He would be dubbed the man who ate his boots. Franklin would marry in 1823 to Eleanor Porden, and the couple would have a daughter. However, his wife would die from tuberculosis just two years later. In 1825, shortly before his wife's death, Franklin left on another Canadian expedition, which is now called the Mackenzie River Expedition. This was really three different excursions that would last for three years. The goal was the exploration of the North American coast between the mouths of the Mackenzie and Coppermine Rivers and the Bering Strait in what is now Alaska, the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. The expedition was largely successful, with the team mapping more than 600 miles of new coastline. During the expedition, Franklin traveled about a thousand miles down the Mackenzie River, becoming only the second European to reach its mouth. On his return to England, Franklin was deemed a hero. He would marry again to Jane Griffin, a woman who will be important later in our story. In 1829, Franklin was knighted for his work as an explorer. He would serve in a civil post beginning in 1837 as Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, which is modern-day Tasmania, in Australia. The time as Lieutenant Governor did not go well for Franklin. Politics were not his strong suit, and over time, he lost the confidence of just about everyone in the colony. Also, his strong-willed wife, Lady Jane, was viewed as having too much influence on policy. In the end, Franklin was removed from office in 1843. The failures in Van Diemen's land had left Sir John and his wife eager to restore Franklin's reputation. With his career winding down, his next gig would likely be Franklin's last chance to make his mark in the field. Therefore, the expedition to map out the Northwest Territory was just the ticket he was looking for. To complete such a thing would be the crowning achievement of his career, and any past failures would be forgotten. Thus, he lobbied hard to lead the expedition. So, as the top candidates were unwilling to lead the expedition, or considered too young, the Admiralty would settle on John Franklin. He had experience in the region, and he had had success as an explorer. He was a safe choice, if an uninspiring one. As noted, Franklin was 59, not a young age for the physical and mental challenges that lay ahead and it didn't help that he was considered overweight and out of shape. Also, Franklin was viewed as being unimaginative and old school, qualities that are not exactly the best attributes heading into an Arctic expedition. Still, he was a guy who had worked hard, had paid his dues, and was generally acknowledged as a competent leader. The Admiralty favored qualities such as that, and they gave him the job. So, that covers the commander of the expedition, Sir John Franklin. Next, I want to talk about two other men who will be important to our story, the captains who would be part of the expedition. The first is Francis Crozier, who would command one of the fleet's two ships, Terror, and be designated second-in-command of the expedition. Crozier was a 49-year-old Irishman and a longtime veteran of the Royal Navy. His credentials were impeccable. In 1814, he had visited Pitcairn Island and met the survivors of the famed Mutiny on the Bounty, and he had taken part in numerous Arctic and Antarctic expeditions, rising in rank over the years. He would be elected as a fellow in the Royal Society, as well as the Royal Astronomical Society. It all reveals a well-respected, intelligent, and experienced officer. 
His biggest issue was his Irish birth, which would never let him get to the top of the pecking order. The other man I want to mention has already been discussed, briefly. That is James Fitzjames. Despite being of illegitimate birth, Fitzjames was a rising star in the Navy. He had shown himself to be brave and resourceful during his service, and that included time in the Middle East as well as in the Opium War in China. While in the Far East, in Singapore, James had saved George Barrow, the son of Sir John Barrow, the big guy at the Admiralty we mentioned earlier, from an embarrassing scandal. This made the Barrow family indebted to Fitzjames, and Sir John Barrow would work tirelessly to promote the young naval officer's career. Thus, Fitzjames was named captain of the other ship in the expedition, Erebus, which would serve as the fleet's flagship, meaning that that is where Franklin would live during the expedition. So, with Franklin settled on as the commander and the captains of the ships in place, it was time to prepare the expedition. As noted, the ships to be employed were HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, the two drawing 378 and 331 tons, respectively. They were sturdy, veteran ships that had ventured to both the Arctic and the Antarctic. Also, the two vessels had been recently modernized. Each was outfitted with a steam engine from an old locomotive. With a single screw each, the ships would be able to make four knots. This was seen as a big deal, as these vessels would no longer be completely reliant on the wind, and the engines would be able to force their way through the ice. They would also provide heat to the ship, something that would be welcomed by the men of the expedition. However, it should be noted that these engines would need coal, lots of it. This would take up a lot of valuable storage space, and at some point they might not operate if the coal supply was depleted. The steam engines were not the only improvements implemented on Erebus and Terror. Both ships were reinforced with heavy beams and plates of iron, to break through the ice, as well as to withstand being crushed by the ice pack. These two ships were state-of-the-art for Arctic exploration. So, as with the upgraded ships, the Franklin expedition would not skimp on provisions, supplies, or amenities. There were more than 1,700 books on Erebus, and another 1,200 on terror. Plus, there were supplies to teach illiterate sailors how to read and write. There would also be Bibles for the men, a request from Franklin, who was a very religious man. The ships would be loaded with scientific instruments for taking measurements and temperatures and so forth, and there was even a camera. As noted earlier, there was a heating system to keep the crew warm. Regarding food, the expedition would take on more than 32,000 pounds of salt beef and 36,000 pounds of biscuits. There would also be 8,000 tins of meat, vegetables, and soup, as well as 7,000 pounds of tobacco, 200 gallons of wine, 9,500 pounds of chocolate, and nearly 10,000 pounds of lemon juice. There were also healthy stores of rum for the seamen, a staple on all British naval vessels. It was all enough for three years, or even five, if rationing was put into effect. By the way, packing food in tins was a relatively new process, having just been developed in the early 1800s. The Navy saw it as a godsend. There would no longer be issues with spoilage and insects. For the Franklin expedition, the tins of food would be purchased from provisioner Stephen Goldner, who completed the job on short notice. However, there were a couple of issues. First, the tins of food taken by the expedition may have had quality issues. It is believed that the lead soldering sealing the tins was done sloppily, and thus lead got into the food. This will become an issue later in our story. Second, the process of canning removed much of the nutritional value from the food, such as vitamin C. In the end, nothing would replace getting fresh meat, fruit, and vegetables. Like the lead in the tins, this lack of nutrition will be important later in our story. One last note about the crew's diet. As mentioned, the fleet brought along 10,000 pounds of lemon juice. The lemon juice provided vitamin C, which was critical in preventing scurvy. At the time, no one really knew exactly why lemons and limes and other fruit were so effective at keeping scurvy at bay. 
But by the 1840s, the practice of including lemons and limes on long voyages was common in the British Navy. They didn't know why it worked, but they knew that it did. By the way, side note here, if you did not know, the reason British people are referred to as limies is because the term originated as a derogatory name for English sailors, who, as we have just noted, included a lot of lime juice in their diet. This term would eventually lose the naval connotation and is now used to refer to British people in general. Side note done. Now, the last thing we want to discuss before we set sail is the crew. There would be 110 crewmen and 24 officers. Most of the men were English, but there was a smattering of Irish and Scots as well. There was also a dog named Neptune and a monkey named Jacko. This was considered a top-notch crew, handpicked for their skill and expertise. For the men, such expeditions were attractive for a variety of reasons. First, they would have the chance to distinguish themselves. Participating in such an endeavor was a nice thing to put on a resume. And second, there was the money. Past expeditions, especially successful ones, often received bonuses, such as double pay. For the men, a long, successful voyage was a way to get a big chunk of cash. Amongst the crew, there would be the standard complement of men, stewards and cooks and stokers and caulkers and seamen and so forth. There were also 14 marines. Of the officers, aside from Franklin and Crozier, only Lieutenant Graham Gore, as well as an assistant surgeon and two ice masters, had Arctic experience. It was one of the most modern and complete expeditions ever assembled for polar exploration. Franklin's men would just have to uncover this middle area of the map, and that would reveal the fabled Northwest Passage. This would bring glory to England and the men involved. Franklin and the Admiralty were confident as the expedition took shape. However, one thing they did not arrange was any sort of rescue plan. The feeling was that the expedition would not need aid for several years, even if things went poorly. Thus, there was no plan set up to come and find the ships or be on the lookout for the men if things went south. Now, quick and weird story before we get the expedition underway. A few days before sailing, Franklin, who was at his home with the flu, had fallen asleep. His wife, who had been sewing a British flag for her husband to take on his journey, placed the flag over her husband's legs for warmth. When Franklin woke up, he freaked out, saying, quote, Don't you know that they lay the Union Jack over a corpse? End quote. It was an ominous sign for what lay ahead. Weird story done. Time to get this journey underway. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. Terror and Erebus departed Greenhithe in southeast England on May 19, 1845. Thousands cheered them off, and everyone's confidence was high. The expedition consisted of the most modern ships and the finest crew. Failure was not an option. For the first stage of the voyage, the expedition would be joined by two ships, HMS Rattler and a transport ship, Barreto Jr. The small fleet sailed north up the coast of Great Britain, stopping in the Orkney Islands right at the top of Scotland. After taking on supplies, the four vessels would head west. They rounded the southern point of Greenland and headed up the western coast of the Great Island, eventually reaching Disco Bay. 
This was about 750 miles up the western coast of Greenland. The journey had taken 30 days from the Orkneys. Here, the expedition made plans to head deep into the Arctic seas. Cattle brought by the transport ship were slaughtered, giving the expedition fresh meat. Also, supplies, including coal, were transferred over to Erebus and Terror. The men of the fleet wrote final letters to family and loved ones back home, which would be delivered by Rattler and Barreto Jr. Also, five men from the expedition were discharged. These were likely men who had gotten sick or been injured in the past month. They would return to England, giving the expedition a complement of 129 men. By the way, from the letters sent home and the reports from the two ships heading back to England, the spirits amongst the officers and the crew of the fleet were high. Also, we get a picture of Franklin, one that shows that he was well-liked and respected by the men. He was affable, as well as fair and measured, even if he was a bit stodgy. As Rattler and Beretta Jr. headed home, mail and dispatches bloated on board, Franklin led his vessels northwest, deeper into Baffin Bay, aiming for Lancaster Sound, the entrance to the Northwest Passage. The two ships arrived at the entrance and waited for favorable weather to proceed west into the channel. On July 28, 1845, the expedition would encounter a pair of whaling ships, Prince of Wales and Enterprise. The captain of Prince of Wales would later report that the ships were in good shape and the spirits of the crew excellent. The whalers and the British ships would part company a few days later, and that would be the last known sighting of Franklin and his expedition. So, at this point, it's good to understand that going forward in our narrative, we have an odd mixture of source materials that reveal our story. First, there is a significant physical document, a single piece of paper that has survived to this day, describing some of the events that we are going to discuss. Second, there is archaeological evidence, discovered over the course of 170 years, that is going to give us more information about the expedition. This is all the stuff that Franklin and his men left behind, including their bodies. And third, there is an oral history, collected from the local Inuit people. All of this makes for a fascinating story, one that allows us to piece together a pretty clear picture as to the fate of Franklin and his expedition. So, in early August, Franklin and his two ships traveled west into Lancaster Sound. We should note that others had come this way before, so Franklin was not breaking any new ground here. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, 25 years previous, William Perry had taken this route west for about five to 600 miles, traveling nearly three-fourths of the way through the Arctic archipelago. But this was deceptive. The flow and thickness of the ice was unpredictable. One year, a channel could be clear for 100 miles, and then it might not open up for 20 more years. To say, oh look, Perry got to point A, so we can too, was a foolish assumption. Erebus and Terror headed west for about 300 miles before the ice grew too thick to keep heading in that direction. However, here, between two islands, the expedition found a channel going north that was clear of ice. Franklin elected to follow this route. No doubt he envisioned reaching the North Pole, another major goal of the British Admiralty. By the way, many men thought that there was a great open Arctic sea in the north, and it was only a matter of time before someone found a way there. Well, as you can imagine, Franklin would not reach the North Pole. His two ships were able to go about 170 miles or so, to 77 degrees north, before ice made things impassable. However, the land to the west in the channel was actually an island, and the fleet made it to its northern tip, and they were able to round it and head back south, down another channel on the island's western side. Franklin and ships would, essentially, circumnavigate what we call Cornwallis Island. Today, Cornwallis Island is home to Canada's second most northerly community, Resolute. It has a population of about two to 300 people. So, as the ships finished circumnavigating Cornwallis Island, they would have found the weather rapidly changing. 
it would be only a matter of time before they were iced in for the winter. The fleet backtracked east a short ways, and Franklin elected to winter at Beachy Island, a small island about 25 miles east of Cornwallis Island, right next to a greater landmass called Devon Island. Lots of islands there. I recommend looking at the maps on our site to get a handle on things. Otherwise, just know that the expedition had gone about 300 miles into the main channel, done some exploring, and then set up winter quarters at a place called Beachy Island. For the long winter ahead, Erebus and Terra would have been trapped in the ice just off the shore of the island. Now, we know virtually nothing about the men's lives at Beachy Island, but it would not have been easy. In the heart of winter, temperatures could drop to more than 50 below zero Fahrenheit. Simply touching a piece of metal would rip off a man's skin. The winds would have been brutal, and there was always the threat of frostbite, which could cost a man his toes or fingers. Also, there was the darkness. For three months, there would be no sunlight in the Arctic. The psychological toll, never seeing the sun for months on end, would have been enormous. On the island, later searchers would find evidence of Franklin and his men, including hundreds of discarded food tins. But the most striking thing, which remains to this day, were the graves of three men. These men died on January 1st, January 4th, and April 3rd, 1846. Each of them was given a proper burial, the ice hacked at least five feet deep and fitted for a coffin. This would have been brutal work in the dark of winter. The deeply religious Franklin likely would have conducted the funeral proceedings. Now, despite the harsh conditions, the deaths of three men so early in the expedition were surprising and ominous. So what happened? Well, the three graves, which as noted still exist to this day, were excavated in the 1980s by a man named Owen Beatty, a professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta. His goal was to determine why these first three men died as a better way to understand the fates of the rest of the crew in the coming years. Beatty would conclude that the men died of pneumonia, with signs of tuberculosis and, surprisingly, lead poisoning. Beatty suggests that the tin food cans were the source of the high lead content in the men's systems. The lead content, by the way, was 10 to 20 times higher than a normal person from the time. The theory is that the cans were badly soldered, and the lead had gotten into them and then into the men. However, another factor may have been the ship's newly installed desalination water system. It is believed that the system would have produced large quantities of water with a very high lead content. Now, some people question these things. They argue that such levels were likely to have developed over many, many years, starting well before the expedition began. After all, the use of lead was widespread and growing at this time. Example, some alcohol stills had a lead component, and there could be lead in drinking mugs or cooking pots. No matter how it happened, the lead levels of the men who perished in 1845 were dangerously high, and lead poisoning would have had a devastating effect on the men, especially when it was combined with conditions such as tuberculosis and scurvy. Men would have displayed a large range of problems, including aches, pains, headaches, disorientation, lethargy, and much more. This is an issue we will deal with going forward. The two ships would have departed Beachy Island once the ice had broken up enough in the channel in the spring or summer of 1846. However, we don't know this exact date. But there are two things I want to point out, things that Franklin did not do before departing Beachy Island. First, Franklin did not leave any messages. This was odd, as it was common for polar explorers to leave notes saying where they had been, and just as important, where they were going. This way, if someone came looking for them, they would have some clue as to where to go next. In fact, Franklin had been ordered to do this exact thing. But he did not, and we do not know why. The second thing Franklin did not do was leave a cache of supplies. In fact, he does this nowhere on his journey. Again, this was a common tactic of polar explorers. They would leave deposits of food and supplies at various locations along the travel route. 
This way, if a ship was incapacitated, the crew, whether on foot or in lifeboats, would have provisions along the return route. This practice had saved other polar explorers in the past, but Franklin did not do this. Just like not leaving any messages on Beachy Island, perhaps it was arrogance, a supreme confidence that they would succeed, and such safety measures were unnecessary. Or maybe Franklin judged it more important to have those supplies on Erebus and Terra. That is understandable. But not leaving any messages is really unforgivable. It cost Franklin nothing to do, and by not doing so, it would cause severe problems in the future. So, it was probably late spring or early summer of 1846. The Franklin expedition was a year into its mission. The men of the fleet would likely have been eager to press forward. If things went well, the ships might even be on the other side of the Arctic archipelago by the fall, and on the way to the Pacific Ocean. All they needed was for the weather to cooperate a bit. So, with the expedition ready to sail west after a winter at Beachy Island, we will wrap up this week's episode. Next week will be the conclusion of the lost Franklin expedition. Join us as we uncover the fates of the men of the expedition, as well as their ships. I hope you've enjoyed this tale up to this point. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.